Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Um, When I finish, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, if you'll respond with thanks be to God. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, and you didn't care for me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. We got like a little gap up here in the first couple rows. I don't know. It's weird. Um, It's the church thing. It's the church thing. You guys know why we stand when we read the word? It's it's to honor it. It's It's to teach us respect for this. We believe that God's word is holy. His his word is perfect. That it's authoritative and that it's sufficient for for every bit of our instruction and training in righteousness. And so standing doesn't make you respect God's word, but it's instructive. And and what we the way we think through the way that we do things here is that we are we're trying to be intentional about every little piece. Um, and, and so we stand to remind ourselves what an honor, what a privilege, privilege it is to hear God's Word, uh, to have a copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have those for you, a gift for you. They're, they're actually pretty good Bibles. Um, we, did, we don't buy the, the cheap ones. We, we get ones that we think that you would like to have for a long time. And so those are in the foyer on your way out. If you want to grab one, you can. Um, if, if nothing else comes of today, but you walking away with a copy of the perfect and sufficient Word of God, then this has been a good day for you. So 
especially if you read it. Um, <laughs> especially if you read it. Maybe you've already got a copy of God's Word and you don't read it. And maybe for you, the one takeaway you need today is you need to pick up God's Word and read it and let it get in you. Let it get down in your bones um, and transform you. And so today, uh, we're going to dig in. And this is how we do things here. If you're new to New King Church, we exist to help as many people as possible find and follow Jesus. One of our values here is depth. And what we mean by that is that we want to dig deep and go deep into God's Word, regardless of whether or not it's a section of Scripture that, that we would have picked to study. We just go through a piece at a time. Right now we're going through this Gospel of Matthew. We're all the way in chapter 25, finishing it up. Um, and by the time we finish, I think we'll have been in Matthew for about two years. And then we'll pick another book and we'll do the same thing. And, and, and that's instructive as well. We want to, the way that we preach and teach, um, we want to help you know how to study your Bible. And, and you don't, we don't think that the best way to study your Bible is to kind of bounce around and just pick a verse here and there that you like, but to read through entire books uh, methodically and, and see the whole picture all together. That's the way to really understand God's Word best. And, and we will occasionally, we'll step away from a book and we'll do a topical study, and that's great. But primarily, this is how we, how we roll here at New King. Um, and there's a purpose behind it. So today, we're, we're finishing up the Olivet Discourse. I mean, several weeks back, we started into this Olivet Discourse where Jesus has left Jerusalem on his way back to Bethany with his disciples, and they've gone up onto the Mount of Olives, and, and they looked back over the city, and, and the disciples asked Jesus uh, to tell them about what it will be like at the end, and at the, at the return or his coming. They don't know that he's going away and coming back, so they'll find that out. But what's it going to be like when he establishes his kingdom and the end of times? And, and that's what the Olivet Discourse is about. So he's up there looking over Jerusalem. The sun's going down, or maybe it's already, maybe it's already down. And he's talking to them about the end times. He's giving them a picture about what it's going to look like, what, how to know that he's, he's about to return. He's giving them a full picture of, you know, what, what to prepare for, what to know you need to know beforehand. And, and there's no way he can do that faithfully without talking about the final judgment. And so that's where we are today. We're going to learn about the final and irreversible judgment to come. That's what this study is about today. So if you have a Bible, uh, a Bible app on your phone, whatever you've got, go ahead and be opened up to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, and we'll have them on the screen as we go through. If you don't have a Bible today, that's okay. Um, but let me pray for us just one more time before we dig into this. Father, I can already tell that I've got more words than I've got time. And you have a solution for that. And, um, and so I just pray for your help that you would help me not to be too talkative, um, to get to the point. 
and that you would just give me your words, Holy Spirit, that I could just be a vessel. And Lord, we trust that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it will and can pierce to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. But Lord, we also know there's the work of the Spirit to wield that sword, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and pick up the sword of the Spirit as I speak and do surgery on each and every one of us, the work that needs to be done. And I pray, Father, that through this word, you would produce in us a greater love and respect and awe of you and a greater love for others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's get to it. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. No, I'm sorry, we'll start out with just 31 and 32. We're not going to reread it all right now. All right, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all, his, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Man, can you picture it? And he comes riding on the clouds and angels with him, warrior angels with him. He's been talking about this in this Olivet Discourse. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus with eyes of fire and a, and a face bright shining like the sun, he's going to sit on his throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So here is our first point that we're going to look at today if you're a note taker. And that is, you cannot have a perfect God without judgment. You cannot have a perfect God without judgment. So let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible teaches us that God is holy, and what that means is that He's perfect, that He's morally pure, that He's totally upright, that there is no darkness in Him, no evil in Him, no shifting shadow due to change. He'll never be anything other than perfectly holy, perfectly pure, perfectly and morally upright. And because He's Perfectly holy, it means he's perfectly righteous, and he's perfectly just. And so, we need to understand what that means, that, that if he is holy, the Bible teaches that also means um, that he loves what is good. He loves what is righteous. He loves what is pure, and that also means he must hate what is evil. In order to be perfectly righteous or perfectly loving, you must hate what is evil. The Bible teaches that. Not only for God, but also for us. So that means that if I love my family, then I must hate what threatens to bring them harm or destroy them. If I love our church family, then that means I have to hate what threatens to come in and pull them away from the living God. I have to hate what threatens to destroy your joy and your peace. I have to hate those things if I love you. 
If I love women, then that means I have to hate pornography, and I have to hate sex trafficking and abuse. If I love innocent babies, then I have to hate abortion and the abortion industry and the things that destroy innocent babies' lives. If I love God's design for the family, then I need to hate the ideas and the ideologies that threaten to undermine and destroy God's good design for the family. So you see, in order to truly love righteousness and what's good and what's pure and what's right, we must hate what is evil and what threatens to destroy what is good and pure and right. And God's no different. He's holy, righteous, and pure, and therefore he must hate what the Bible calls sin. Sin is any evil done against this holy God. And in his hatred for evil, he can't be passive toward it because that wouldn't be just, you see, to, to sweep something under the rug. It, it, we know this intuitively. No judge that looks at a legitimate crime done and then sweeps it under the rug and says, forget it, you know, it doesn't matter that you killed those innocent people. It doesn't matter that you harmed those children. It doesn't matter that, that you did this or that. We'll just sweep it under the rug. Nobody would look at that judge and be like, that's a good judge. That judge is so just. Right? We have in our hearts, we, we, we understand because we have been made in the image of God, we understand innately this idea of justice. And so if we see... Um, you know, someone abuse their power and harm someone else, we demand justice. We want to see justice done. If, if we see uh, someone harm a, a child, someone hurt the innocent, we demand justice. We get this, right? Except for when it comes to God. And we, and we suddenly have a block in our minds. Like, well, that should apply to society, but not to God, he shouldn't be just. But if he's not just, then he's not pure and holy. He's not good. You see. There's no justice without judgment. And therefore, you cannot have a perfect God without perfect judgment. God's judgment is a theme throughout the Bible. I'm just going to read several places. Um, we're not going to have these on the screen. It would be too much. But listen... Listen to how frequently this comes up. This is just a, a small sampling. Um, his judgment is a theme in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Psalm 96, 13. Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. And so we see it in the Old Testament, but we especially see it far more so in the New Testament. Don't believe the lie that, oh, that was like an Old Testament God kind of a thing. God hasn't changed. In fact, this idea comes up far more often in the New Testament. 2 Peter 3, 7. The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Revelation 20, 11 through 12, then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Acts 17, 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And it's not just throughout the New Testament scriptures, but even in the teachings of Jesus himself. And I think Jesus spoke of judgment more than anyone else in the New Testament. He says earlier in the book of Matthew, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That was Mark, I mean, uh, Matthew 12, 36. John 5, 22, the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. Jesus is the one who will judge the world in righteousness. Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So judgment is all throughout the Bible. It's all throughout Jesus' teachings. And you say, I thought God was loving, I thought Jesus was loving. Why all this talk about judgment? And the answer is that He is very much a loving God, very much. And His talk about judgment is out of love. Um, it's, it's to warn. So earlier this week, I was sitting on the exit ramp um, getting off of 89, and somebody turns to go up the exit ramp to get on 89 the wrong way. And cars are, are honking their horns and flashing their lights. And finally the car, like halfway up the ramp, stops and turns around and goes the other way. Now imagine if that car, if the person driving that car had thrown up their hands and said, what's with all the honking and the flashing? What in the world? And just kept on driving. That'd be foolish, right? But these were warnings out of concern for their safety. Or when I grab Millie's arm and pull her back because she leans too far over the fire when we're, when we're roasting s'mores, and I, and I explain to her the dangers of fire and how it, it could kill her, is that not, is that not loving? It's, it's absolutely out of love that God warns, that Jesus warns us of the judgment to come. And the judgment to come is because of His goodness. It's, it's rooted in His holiness. There is no justice without judgment. And so there's no lack of love or gentleness in Christ. This is concern when He brings these things 
to his disciples and to us. And so if, the, if, if Jesus and the scriptures teach so much about judgment without apology, then so should we. And, and, and I want to just warn us against talking about the judgment of God with uh, apology to follow it up, like apologizing for God's holiness. What, what you're doing when, when we do that is we're essentially saying, look, God's pretty much all good. There's just this one little area that's not good about God, and let me just apologize for that. This is just one little area that I don't love. I love everything about God. There's just one thing, this, this, this just judgment that's coming. You know what I'm saying? So how that, that, that communicates such a double-mindedness. It communicates something that's untrue, right? And so we should never, we should never talk about this um, with like an apology to follow it up or to soften the blow. That's just not being true to God. His judgment's right, and it's necessary for His holiness and His, his moral perfection, you see, and it also wouldn't be right for us to never talk about the holiness of God because in not talking about it ever, or the judgment of God, in not talking about it ever, what, what we're doing there is we're communicating by our silence that this is the one part about God we just don't love that's not good. You see? Paul's gospel included the judgment to come. His gospel. The good news about Jesus, when Paul thought about the gospel, the good news about Jesus, a part of that in his thinking was the judgment. Let me show you, Romans 2.16. This is Paul saying, on that day, the, the final day, when according to my, what? Gospel. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is a part of Paul's gospel is that Jesus is going to judge everyone. Or let's look at another example from Paul. Acts 24, 24 through 25 says, After some days, Felix, who's a Roman governor that put Paul in custody, came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what is it? that Paul talks about with people when he talks about faith in Jesus Christ. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control hmm, and the coming judgment. Interesting. I thought the, the gospel, I thought faith in Jesus was just like, you know, it's just all the really happy things that we think of. No, no, no. This is how Paul wins a person over. He's, he, this is, Paul was better at this than us. Let's just acknowledge that, right? And this is how Paul saw to do it. He goes, okay, we need to talk about righteousness, how, how to live a, a righteous life, and self-control, which is pretty challenging for all of us, and the coming judgment. Now, why? It says, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, you think that Paul thought, oh, I didn't mean to alarm you, Felix. <laughs> no. Paul probably thought, 
okay, good, he's alarmed, then he understands. He gets it. Without that, without that alarm, without that understanding, why would you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? Why would, why would forgiveness be good news? Who, why do you need God to forgive you? I'm good, thank you very much. No, no, there needs to be an alarm, a wake-up. Oh my goodness, there is judgment coming, and it's going to be based on righteousness, and I am not righteous. I can look at my life and see the lack of (laughs) self-control. You see? This is a part of Paul's gospel. John 3.36 tells us, if you listen to uh, mine and Lucius's podcast... Uh, you already heard us talk about this. little plug. Uh, we've got a podcast. It's pretty cool. Um, check that out. We talked about this on Good Friday. Wrath for sin. The, the, the doctrine of God's wrath for sin, understanding it, is what makes grace so sweet. If you don't understand what grace is saving you from, or why you need it, then why is it sweet? And, and John 3.36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, the wrath of God is for and toward all sin and sinners until that sin is removed by faith in the Son. And so, um, because God is perfectly good, perfectly holy and just, there must be judgment. And that's good, and we shouldn't apologize for it, and we should celebrate it because it's part of who God is. So, there will be a day of judgment that is coming for all people. It says, before him will be gathered all the nations. There won't be a single person excluded from this. So the question is, how will we be judged? And that's what the rest of this chapter is going to talk about. Let's look at verses 32 through 36. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I just need to pause here for a second. In, in the Scriptures, what you saw was that there would be one child, the eldest son, who would inherit the family's everything. They would receive the inheritance. And they were considered the child of the right hand. And so when you would you pass this blessing on through a verbal blessing at the end of your life, and you would put your right hand on the child that's receiving the inheritance and give them a blessing that way. You might remember that from some stories in the Old Testament. So that's, that's what's going on here. He's putting those who are going to inherit the kingdom 
on his right. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me, or ill-clad, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So here's point number two. If you're a note taker, we will be judged according to our works. I'm going to, this point um, is not going to be as long because we've talked about this a lot even recently here at New King. Um, but I want to explain here. We will be judged according to our works. Now, let me explain what, what, what I mean. We are not saved by our works. I can't be. I don't, I, I don't want to confuse anybody here. You are not saved by your works. You're not. You cannot be good enough ever to be accepted by God and welcomed into his kingdom and inherit his kingdom. That's not what this is teaching, so don't get confused by the wording. We're not saved by our works, by our good deeds, by our effort, by our righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. Um, and so our works can never, ever, ever, ever justify us before a holy God. Only Jesus' works, His perfect righteousness, only His works can justify us before a holy God. And we are imputed His works, His righteousness, when we put our faith in Him. And so that's that's... This isn't saying those who did enough good deeds are welcomed into the kingdom. But it is saying that you will be judged, every person will be judged according to your works. Let me explain that. Notice that that the way that these people are identified is they're sheep. They're sheep and they're goats. They're a different kind of being, right? So that's one thing. But the first thing that's said about them is, come you who are blessed by my Father. They're not first and primarily identified as, come you doers of good deeds, but you who are blessed of my Father, you who've been blessed or received unmerited favor by my Father, inherit the kingdom. So you are the ones that the kingdom is for. It's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is your identity, not that you've done these good works, right? So that's the primary identifier of those who will be in heaven. They've been blessed by the Father. They will inherit the kingdom that was prepared for them. They are the the ones who this inheritance is for. Yes. So we're saved by grace, by God's undeserved favor upon us. But faith is required for that grace to be ours. That faith is not just applied to all people everywhere, right? There are goats. There's a separation. Some people don't come in. And so 
the way that the Bible continually teaches this is that we are saved by grace, by undeserved favor from God, through faith. Faith is the conduit. It is the channel. It's the open door for God's undeserved favor to come to us. And faith is evident through a changed life. Faith is evident through actions. Faith without works, according to James 2, is what? Dead. If there's not any works to show the faith, then what the Bible would say is, you don't have reason to feel confident in your claim to faith. Because real faith and genuine faith produces a different kind of life. And so, when we say we will be judged according to our works, what we're saying is, at the end, we're, we're, our works, our deeds, our lives are going to be laid out as the evidence. And then based upon the evidence, the judge will look on it and say, yes, there's real faith. There's real, there's real faith here seen by the evidence. Or, no, there's not real faith here. Our works are the test. Our works are the test of real faith. Um, here's what it says in Revelation 20, 12 through 13. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. According to what they had done. So this isn't saying that if they did enough good things, they earned God's favor and they earned God's grace. It's saying that what was done was judged to determine if undeserved grace was upon that person's life because they believed in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is teaching here. That's what the Bible teaches over and over again. Um, And so I don't want us to misunderstand this, but we are to understand that faith without a changed life is a dead faith. Faith without a new evidence of that faith, faith without fruit, is a dead faith. Because real faith, genuine faith, will produce fruit. It will. So I hope that's clear. Now, I want to move on to this last point um, and, and, and ask the question, what works will Jesus be primarily looking for when we stand before him? And that's what this parable is ultimately getting at. What are the works that he will be looking for primarily when we stand before him? Look at, look at uh, verses 37 through 40. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And here's the third point, final point. Real faith produces real love. Real faith produces real love. Now, notice who it is that shows that their faith was genuine. It isn't those who stand before God and show their great, big, impressive ministries. You might, you might remember kind of a scary passage in Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23, where Jesus says, on the last day, many people are going to stand before me, call me Lord, Lord. They're, they've been used to calling me Lord their whole lives. And they're going to say to me, they're going to, they're going to show how they did they, they, they prophesied, and, and they cast out demons, and they did many mighty works in my name. And I'm going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So, you know, is Jesus saying miracles and, and healing and prophecy and those things aren't real? No, that's not what he's saying. Those things are absolutely real um, and still happen today. But what he is saying is that those are not the evidence of a true faith. So you can actually cast out demons and perform miracles just through the power of his name. Judas did it, and he wasn't a Christian. You can do many mighty works just in the power of his name and not know him. But what you can't do is genuinely, sacrificially love his people. You can't do that over the long haul. You won't. Not unless you've got a transformed heart. And so the, those who prove that their faith is genuine are those who serve a brother or a sister in Christ. Notice that he said, it's one of the least of these my brothers or my brothers and sisters. That's who he's talking about. One of the least of these, my brothers and sisters in his family. And so absolutely we are to serve our neighbor and love our neighbor as ourself. But this is Jesus talking about serving and loving and meeting the needs of the church, Christians as being the primary fruit and indicator of a transformed life. And notice, it's not big, remarkable things. It's, it's helping somebody out. Have you, have, has anybody ever stood up and applauded you for helping somebody move or, or going to someone in the hospital and visiting them? No, it's just, it's not, nobody thinks anything of it. And maybe this is you. Maybe you're the kind of person who serves behind the scenes day in and day out, and you pour out yourself for the good of others, and you love them, and you think, I'm just a nobody. No, you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is the one that Jesus welcomes into his kingdom. It's the one that meets the real needs of his people. Food, water, clothing, a hospitable welcome, a visit when sick or in prison. And these were the real and common needs of the first century, and they are still 
very common in parts of the world today, and you can still meet some of these needs right here today, but it's, this isn't an exhaustive list. This is talking about meeting real and tangible needs of Christ's body right in front of you. So this might look like helping a, a brother or sister move. It might, it might look like sitting with somebody in their loneliness. It might look like visiting somebody that hasn't had a visit or inviting them into your home or helping them to clean their house or bringing them a meal or whatever the need that you see is. It's real. And it's right in front of you if your eyes are open. So the question we got to ask ourselves is, do I seek to meet the needs of those God is placing in front of me? That's the evidence of a truly changed heart. Do I love God's people? The Bible says there's no such thing as loving Him apart from loving His people. And the Bible says there's no such thing as loving people apart from serving them. Look at 1 John 3, 14 through 18. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoa, it's pretty, it's pretty blunt. How do I know that, I've, that I'm actually saved? How do I know I'm really a Christian? We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, Christians. Wow. Wow. That's a Bible verse? <laughs> Whoever does not love abides in death. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Man, so to love the Lord is to love people. To love people is to serve them tangibly and in ways that feel like you're laying your life down. Right, that's what this is about. You don't feel like you have the time, but you give the time. You don't feel like you have the money, but you give the money. You don't feel like you have the resource, but you give the resource. You don't feel like you have the emotional energy, but you give it. Because you love people. And especially those who are in the household of God. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1.3. This is Paul writing to a church in Thessalonica, and he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because... Your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. When Paul, this is not the only place we see this in Paul's letters. When Paul writes letters to his churches that he plants and ministers to, we see this frequently that he's looking for love among that fellowship as the evidence of God's grace and their genuine faith comes up over and over and over again. So listen, I celebrate this big time in this church because this is a special place. I mean, I don't know if you are aware of this, but not every church loves 
each other like this church does. It's really special, and it's an evidence of God's grace. So this isn't a passage about just general philanthropy. There's a lot of people out there who don't know God who, you know, are philanthropists. This is a passage primarily about tangibly loving and serving Christians, those who have been adopted into the family of God and made siblings of Christ. Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because we've been cleansed, because we are holy as He is holy based upon His righteousness imputed to us. And did you notice the identification that he has with Christians? Verse 40, And the king will answer to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Wow. And then in verse 45, he will answer to them, answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This is incredible that Christ so identifies with believers, is so truly one with believers, that what is done to another believer is done to him. Or what is not done for another believer is not done for him. We see this when Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. And do you remember what he says to Saul in his rebuke? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting the church, and Jesus feels that and experiences that as persecution against himself. That is how vitally Christ is united with his church. He's one with us. Praise God. So when we do help a brother or sister in need, we're loving and serving Jesus himself. I got to wrap this thing up. I'm running out of time. But why is this an evidence of real faith? Because because real faith shows that you really love Jesus. It's not, just, it's not just this distant trust in some guy who once lived. It is an intimate relationship with a real man who is God named Jesus. And, and, and love grows for him. And, and as love grows for him, we love his people. James 1.12 says that the crown of life is promised to those who love the Lord. James 2.5 says the kingdom is promised to those who love him. So love is an evidence of real faith. And whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what is the fate of those who don't have real faith? What's it say? Look at verse 46. What is at stake here? Or what becomes of those who are not blessed of the Father. It says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the irreversible judgment 
for rejecting Christ is eternal punishment, everlasting punishment, a place where, according to back in verse 30, he says, is a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a real hell, a real punishment for sin and those who remain in their sin. And the Bible is very explicitly clear about it. And to not teach that and to not say that is terribly unloving. It's terribly unloving. It's like letting my three-year-old play around the fire and never tell her that it can kill her. And so, friends, there's a real hell. There's a real end of the age coming, a real judgment coming. And the hope, the only hope for us is if we are found in Jesus. If when that day comes, God looks upon you and instead of seeing your sin and all your rebellion against God, all the evil that you've done, all of your acts of rebellion, He sees instead Someone who turned in faith to Jesus and believed on him and believed that Jesus' death on the cross was payment for your sins, that he paid the full price, that he absorbed all that wrath that's just, that comes from his holiness, that he absorbed all of that on your behalf, that he paid the penalty for sin in full, that he was buried. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave to offer new life and a fresh start and forgiveness and his righteousness to anyone and everyone who would turn from their sin and put their faith in him. That's the offer. And it's those who've done that who will not have to fear this day of judgment. And we will, those who have done that, not only avoid an eternity of punishment, but we will receive an eternity in a kingdom that's given to us. We'll be heirs of His kingdom. So, I want to close with maybe you're thinking, um, okay, well, I want to love and serve sacrificially God's people. Um, how can I do that? Band, you guys can come on, come on up. How can I do that? And, and we're gonna, we actually have some, I, I hope I made it clear that you have opportunities to serve God's people all around you all the time, but, but, but I want to I wanna point out two opportunities to love and to serve the least of these very, very tangibly. One is today and next week are Compassion Sunday. And Compassion Sunday, we're going to see a little bit more about that, is an opportunity to partner with a ministry that actually gives food and water and clothing and education and Bible teaching to the poorest children in the world. It's an amazing ministry that we're happy to partner with. If you don't know about that, you're going to find out more about it, and you can stop by the Compassion table on your way out. And most of these families, at least someone in the family, if not the child themselves, are believers because they go to a compassion center and hear the good news and and either they are already or they become Christians. 
And so it's a real tangible opportunity to serve the least of these. And I hope you'll check into that if you're uh, not already doing that. And then the second is we have a family um, that's moving here in a couple of weeks that has fled uh, communism and they are here and they, in order to get out, they had to spend all their life savings um, and with more gifts from others to, to fly on an airplane to get here and they have nothing but their, a couple of bags and they're, they want to come here and start over. And these are dear, dear Christians, a family that we've been friends with for a long time. And they want to start over and they have nothing. And, and what Tiffany and I have told them is, I know our church is the kind of church that will, get, will rally around you. We know our church is the kind of church that won't let you come here and, and, we, and that will just let you fail. I know that to be true of us. And so I'm excited about that opportunity to tangibly serve the least of these Christ's brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. It's so clear. Thank you for your holiness. Thank you for your righteous judgment. And thank you, Lord, for the gospel that gives us a way of avoiding your wrath for sin. And thank you for the reminder, Lord, of how evil and wicked sin is that it must be punished for eternity. And Lord, for the way that that refreshes our hearts and minds to steer clear of sin and the ways of the world, Lord, and to strive after holiness. And Lord, thank you for giving us each other, for giving us a family, for adopting us into a family with brothers and sisters all over the world, and that we can be a part of serving them, and that we can serve you in so doing. Empower us by your grace and fill us with your spirit to do these things and be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.